Hello, Cozy Stranger, and hello, 2021. Hi, friends, and yes, happy, happy new year. Happy new year to you, too. So what are we talking about today? Today is another hot topic, and now that we are in 2021, uh, weeks of indulgence and binging on holiday food is over or almost over. Perhaps people are still eating their leftovers. Many of us have now begun our quote-unquote New Year's resolution of eating healthier, and most have began either on January 1st or probably waited until Monday, or maybe are still waiting till the next Monday to begin their healthy journey. So this episode is really about diets, uh, but more importantly, like what works, what doesn't, and if diets really are necessary to get into healthy balance. We talk a lot about different types of diets, why we diet, uh, what is this diet culture that everybody seems to be in. So um, I guess the first question to you is, are you one of those people that binge through the holidays and then begin your healthy eating uh, in the beginning of the new year? Well, nope, not anymore. Um, (laughs) I am very familiar with diet culture. I have struggled with um, weight issues and body image issues my whole life. Um, When I first started dieting, I believe I was 13. Um, It's really early. And I did it because of the bullies. Hmm. I was bullied throughout my childhood because I was a heavier kid. Mm-hmm. But um, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was unhealthy. I never had um, health issues, but I was definitely heavier. Um, and I was even smaller when I first heard someone say, maybe you shouldn't eat that, maybe six or seven. I was really young. Oh. And these things have effects on you that changes the way you eat food for your whole life, I believe. This has been a very long journey for me um, to understand my relationship with food because it's bad. I'm not going to lie. I don't have the best relationship with food. I associate eating with lack of discipline. If mm. I eat too much, I feel like I am. I have no willpower and it changes the way I see myself. And this has resulted in episodes of starvation and binging and disordered eating, which I will be um, talking throughout this episode. Um, I, will be exp- uh, I will be explaining my own um, experiences. But first, I want to hear what are your experiences like? I am no different than you and the majority of women and men, <laughs> a lot of men too, we should, we should include them. Uh, yes, I, uh, I think my first diet began probably mm, freshman year, like real diet, probably freshman year of high school. And I can't say I was never bullied. Um, I didn't feel it was coming from, maybe it was subconsciously coming from like the social standards. Mm-hmm. But I really felt like it was more my own insecurities, maybe not even insecurities, but I just felt like I I maybe was heavier or I didn't feel that uh, comfortable in my body. Um, And so, yeah, I think freshman year was a was a year of uh, of dieting. And that lasted that that dieting lasted for for probably a decade, if not more. Mm if not more, probably even more, and kind of like yo-yo dieting, different types of dieting. 
uh, Jessica oh, yeah. said, you know, like restriction, heavy restrictions, fasting, uh, you know, I never did like those crazy, like cabbage diets or, but I did do like juicing diet that lasted two days for me. <laughs> or, um, you know, I did, I, I definitely, uh, I definitely dieted for a very long time. It, it took me a really long time to find a healthy uh, balance. And even now, even now I still restrict myself and I, you know, we've had this conversation. I still continue to restrict myself with, for example, like sugar and carbs, because mm-hmm. I know that if I, um, if I, I eat that, then you know, there will be weight gain no matter what. So um, I don't feel like I'm on a diet anymore. Um, I do feel like I restrict myself to certain groups, not, not completely limit, uh, not totally mm-hmm. limit, but definitely restrict myself. But, um, you know, it's interesting, we've, we've both have this, you know, diet experiences um, that we went through or going through. um, And yet there's such different experiences that we both have had. But uh, what's interesting is that as I was, uh, again, I was researching for this, for this episode, and I looked into what were the most popular diets in 2020. And Mm -hmm. the top three uh, came out to be Intermittent fasting, which we'll talk about because I actually do intermittent fasting, clean eating, and I know you have something to say about that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, keto diet or like high fat diet. And then, you know, not just 2020, but throughout the last couple of years, there was like low carb diet, flexitarian diet, intuitive eating, low carb low-fat, Weight Watchers, vegetarian, Mediterranean, gluten-free, Atkins, uh, Whole30, vegan, paleo, South Beach. I mean, there's so, so, so many um, types of diets. Um, And I know you have thoughts on that. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So I do want to talk a little bit about the first, you know, the top three, um, Mm -hmm. because they're very popular. They're everywhere. There are apps, for them, I I've known like I've seen apps about intermittent fasting. I have it about you have it. Mm-hmm, yeah, so, I have it. I'm not gonna name it because uh, that's not what the episode about. But yeah, it's it's actually a pretty good app where it mm-hmm. just provides you. Uh, so I do intermittent fasting. Not every day, uh, but a lot of the times, mm-hmm. and it's a 16 hour period where I don't eat. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, this particular app just tells you like when to start fasting and when your fasting stops. And then of course it gives you the, uh, it gives you like a, like a history of what you have been doing, how many, how many days in a row you fasted, you know, what's your period, so on and so forth. So yeah, I do do that. So why did you choose intermittent fasting? I just want to ask you that. You know, uh, to be honest with you, it worked really well with my lifestyle. So I am not very much like a breakfast person. I love breakfast Mm -hmm. food. I'm okay to eat it like, you know, during brunch or or even dinner sometimes. But uh, I love it too. I know. So what what has happened and, and we're late eaters. So we eat pretty very late at night so like nine ten o'clock at night and so what would happen is because we would late eat uh eat late at night we wouldn't eat until the next day you know we'll have a cup of coffee and then we won't eat until like 2 p.m and so intermittent fasting for that reason actually worked really well so instead of just kind of seeing how it, it wasn't necessarily amount of like hours I wasn't eating it just it was automatic. So for me, it worked really well because it was already part of my lifestyle. And so then I, mm-hmm. I downloaded the app 
for I guess for the fun of it, for the statistics of it, you know, because I I love math and I love, you know, the statistical analytical parts of it. And so Mm -hmm. it was really good for me to see, okay, so I start fasting, let's just say at 11 p.m. And then 16 Mm -hmm. hours later, the app tells me, okay, now you can eat. Now you can break your fast, so let's say. So for Mm -hmm. me, it wasn't necessarily I was changing anything. um, And I Mm -hmm. wasn't sacrificing anything. Uh, It was more Mm -hmm. like of a lifestyle. And again, if you know, intermittent fasting was about eating early in the morning and not eating at night, uh, late at night, then it wouldn't work for me because I'm not willing to sacrifice that kind of schedule, change of schedule, just because it works well for us. You know what, that's really an important point, because um, we only can do any type of diet that suits our lifestyle. For example, if I were to do intermittent fasting, it would be impossible for me to do that because I do work on 24 hour shifts. And for me to fast more than half of that time would be impossible. I would get hypoglycemia. I would, I I tend to faint when I have a low blood pressure. So Mm -hmm. it will be a pain in my um, butt. So I can't do that. And I think that's really important because um, now that I'm going to talk a little bit about these diets and what they do and where they come from, it's really important for me that everyone understand that I'm not trying to bash the people who mm-hmm. who does anything, um, any type of diet, because it's not about that. It's just about being informed about why you're doing what you're doing and to choose um, with intention mm-hmm. what you're going to do. So when we talk about intermittent fasting, it, it's actually not a very um, old type of diet. It's It has come out, I think, five years ago or something like that. If I'm not wrong, I have to check on that. But the original study who suggest, uh, which suggested that eating in a limited time frame would prolong lifespan and encourage weight loss was actually done on rats. And that's really important to understand because um, even though we have similar genetics, believe it or not, we are not the same. Um, we don't work the same. We don't um, live the same way. Our metabolic rates are very different. So it is really important for um, everyone who does intermittent fasting to understand that um, if something isn't tested on humans, we can say that um, the results are 100% would be the same. Mm-hmm. So there has been a recent randomized clinical trial, which is one of the most valuable types of clinical research um, that was done in humans. Uh, And it concluded, and I quote, time-restricted eating did not confer weight loss or cardiometabolic benefits. So Mm -hmm. there is no actual scientific data. And I don't mean don't do it. It doesn't work. It might work for you. It might suit your lifestyle because um, because of your, um, you do limit your time frame. So you would eat less. You wouldn't snack as much. Mm -hmm. So in the end, just create a calorie deficit and it would result in weight loss. But it's not... Um, it might not be the miracle that people thought it would be. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to be as nuanced as possible because <laughs> these are very hard topics to talk about. So the next one, and I'm really passionate about this one, is clean eating. So <laughs> what the hell is a clean eating? You know, it does, if there's a clean eating, there should be also dirty eating. And what is dirty eating? What is a dirty food? And I'm assuming what they mean is processed food, right? They, um, the whole thing is um, you don't eat any processed food. And some people even say um, no GMOs, no um, modified food, genetically modified food, which is a whole other topic that maybe I will talk someday. But um, in the end, there's no doubt eating more whole foods, fruits and vegetables, home cooked meals is good for us. 
There is no doubt. The only thing I want to um, point out here is that having access to um, whole foods, fresh crops, is a privilege. And not many people have it, especially mm-hmm. um, from country to country. It, it's different. And mm-hmm. where the more um, low socioeconomical areas suffer from low access to fresh fruits and vegetables and we have to always account that when we are when we're talking about you know do this do that I mean you can't tell people to eat fresh food all day long but if they don't have the money or the access to it they won't be able to do it for example I do work in a hospital that is located in a rural area and it has um, low socioeconomic status so when I'm on a night shift I can't find any apples. But what I can find is maybe biscuits or um, a Snickers bar. And that's okay. If I have to eat that to survive that night, that's okay. So yeah. we have to, um, we have to take the shame away from eating what we have, what we have, what we can find. Of course, choosing wisely is important, but saying only is a little bit discriminating. That's what I'm trying to point out. Yeah, I think also it's, uh, you know, clean eating. Like there's, it seems to be like such a bad negative connotation to like, if it's not clean eating, just like you said, there's dirty eating and what is clean mm-hmm. or dirty eating. It just seems like there's a like negative psychological effect to the wording itself. Yeah, definitely. For example, if I were to, if I were trying to do clean eating, if I had a pizza night, I would feel bad because I would just say, oh, I ate dirty. And that's not true, right? Food doesn't have moral value. And I will keep saying this until everyone hears me, but (laughs) food doesn't have moral value. So we have to change the way we think about food. Yeah, absolutely. And also... Also about the keto diet, which is the third one, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a neurologist, I'm not foreign to the concept. We do advise some of our patients to do a keto diet, but those patients are actually usually children that has drug-resistant epilepsy. Mm. And that is not a very common thing. Some other specific disorders that might benefit from it, but other than that, no, it's not, it's not scientifically proven. Um, it has nothing to do with weight loss. We don't do this for weight loss. We do this so that um, we can hire the threshold of epilepsy seizures. So it doesn't work like that. I'm sorry. I know it's very popular, but it doesn't work. And Well, it does work. I mean, people have lost weight on keto dieting, but what, what mm-hmm. I think the out from my understanding, I've never done keto dieting. I was a vegetarian for like 10 years. So meat to me is like, I eat it once a week and you know, th- mm-hmm. that's plenty, but um, it, it does work in a sense of weight loss because people have definitely lost weight on it, but it doesn't work long-term or, and it probably ha- uh, has a negative effect on certain body. Like cholesterol. Yeah. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, totally. So, um, I mean, it probably works because you eat less carbs. Um, You eat less bread and pasta and things like that. I think, I'm assuming, I don't know. I've never read any keto diet books. I only know the concept because um, I only know the keto diet that we are um, advising that is like medically proven. But other than that, I think it's... um, It's a highly advertised type of Mm -hmm. diet, but we have to look into why it is advertised because people are making money off of it. So I think um, everyone should do their their own research, definitely. But on a medical standpoint, nope, I have to say. So the only scientifically 
proven diet to improve health is actually Mediterranean diet. And there has been so many research on this. And we know this from the um, Japanese and the Italians who um, live longer, um, healthier uh, lives. And it consists of basically vegetables, fruits, herbs, nuts, beans, whole grains, all the good things. And Mm -hmm. the most important thing is meals are built around plant-based foods. Mm -hmm. So um, you only take moderate amounts of dairy, um, eggs or chicken or um, meat. So you limit the amount of um, meat that you take in and then you basically eat more plant-based foods. And I, this is the diet that I actually advise my patients. This is what I tell them. This is the only thing that works. Everything in moderation. Um, mm-hmm. Don't eat too much of one um, particular uh, food group, even though you believe it's a superfood mm-hmm. or whatever they tell that they are. Um, you should eat everything, but in moderation. So um, they're actually really good research about plant-based diets. So I know you told me about this like twin experiment or something. Yeah, I saw this. uh, So this, and again, just to go back, like I, my, my, I have a vegan in the family. My sister-in-law is vegan. She's been vegan since Mm. she was 14. Um, You know, she's absolutely healthy. She's had two kids. Like there's, you know, I think there's a healthy way in in all types of diets or quote unquote life lifestyle diets but I do agree with you for the most part like I don't think we should limit or we should take away any food groups I think there there should be maybe perhaps Mm -hmm. like a limit to it right so this twin diet was really interesting especially because although I was not vegan I was vegetarian for over 10 years and um to this day when I I remember when I first had meat because my body was craving meat I wanted Mm -hmm. meat. This was a couple of years ago. And I was like, okay, I have to listen to my body. And I thought I was going to be like, you know, like a halo will come around or like some, something crazy is going to (laughs) happen. Then it was absolutely nothing. It's like, I've always eaten meat before. It was like, okay. Like I got my craving out. Like, okay. But now, you know, meat is, I still don't love like red meat. I eat chicken, you know, but anyway, so this twin Mm -hmm. diet, there was two men who um, are identical twins. They're in their, Mm -hmm early to mid thirties. And they decided to do a 12 week study. One of them became a vegan, fully mm-hmm. vegan. And the other one was uh, a meat eater. And so they did everything the same. They ate the same amount of calories. Um, of course, one was eating vegan. The other one was uh, meat based. And they, when they went to the gym, they did exactly the same thing at the gym. So like everything was mm-hmm. pretty much the same. And the outcome was really interesting. So the only quote unquote positive was that the male who ate meat gained about a 4.5% of muscle mass, Mm -hmm. um, whereas the vegan one only gained, let's just say like a 2% muscle mass. However, Mm -hmm. however, the meat eater also gained body fat where the Mm -hmm. vegan lost body fat. And when they compared uh, various, uh, various tests, when they did various tests in the body, including like cholesterol and all that other stuff, the vegan one came out much, much better. So Mm -hmm. it's also to me, that was an interesting study, even though I'm not planning to go plan based or vegan anytime soon, or maybe even ever. But it is an interesting thing. I continue to read how plant based foods and are uh, a bit more healthier, I guess, or, or uh, are providing a lot more benefits than we thought about because we were carnivores for such a long time, right? Like we grew up, yeah. uh, you know, the civilization is all about hunting and, uh, 
you know, all that stuff besides the, the moral aspect of, you know, killing animals. Um, yeah. that that's a whole different topic, but you know, there's, there's definitely some truth to, uh, to plant-based diet. So yeah, so there's, there's a lot of diets that we just covered. I mean, there's all other ones that, you know, from, from cabbage to soups to all of this other <laughs> stuff, but then there's also detoxing. And I just talked about juicing and colonics and detox diet that I, uh, tea, sorry, detox teas, which I see advertised all the time. And I'm always like, why are they advertising oh, yeah. it to me? Because I'm like the, like, I actually think very negatively of, of detox tea. So I want to know your doctor opinion on, on all of these kind of detox. What is a detox and like juicing, colonics, which I've done. We, we can talk about that as well. Um, and then <laughs> detox teas. Well, I mean, first of all, um, detoxing your liver is not a thing. I mean, it, it's pretty much the same logic as breathing your lungs. That's what your liver does. Anyway, it is its only purpose to detox your body and can't detox your liver with um, that lemon juice you drink in the morning. I mean, it won't do anything other than give you heartburn if you're susceptible to reflux. That's it. I'm sorry. <laughs> it might taste good, though. Not my thing, but it might taste good. So no matter how much superfoods you take in, no matter how um, much lemon juice you drink, no matter how much ginger tea you drink, you're not going to detox your liver. Your liver does it for you. It does it very well. Just trust it and let it go. Most of the detox um, detox programs do nothing but um, give you a low-calorie, um, high-water intake, and that's it. It doesn't work like that. I'm sorry. Don't waste your money on it. It doesn't work. But when we come to juices, well, it won't cleanse cleanse your intestines. That's the same logic. Um, it will only make you constipated if you drink juice for a couple of days because lack of fiber tends to do that. But a lot of people experience this like light feeling, but that's because usually what people do is they eat quite heavy right before they go into a juice cleanse. So they either go through a juice cleanse because they ate heavy or some people even eat heavier before because they think, oh, I'm going to go on a juice cleanse. I will be right. very cleansed. So I, now I can eat everything. But when they start only drinking juice, um, you feel a little bit lighter because what you're doing is you're not eating those heavier foods anymore. We know some foods make us lethargic. It changes from person to person. We talked about this, like for example, me and I know you as well. When I eat too much carbs, like bread or pasta, when I eat mm -hmm. um, larger amounts of it, especially late at night, um, the next day I feel so, so heavy. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like I don't want to get out of bed. I feel like I can't wake up. I just want to sleep whole day. The juicing only removes what makes you lethargic. The juice itself doesn't do anything. Um, you will just pee it away. Yeah. And what you do is you will also, if you do, if you do that for a long time, you will starve yourself because those are very, very, very low calorie um, programs. You will start getting headaches. Some people even start like fainting or getting like hypoglycemia. We definitely do not advise anyone to do that. I know I've tried it when I was in med school for, I think I lasted three days. Yeah, me too. Um, I lasted like two days. <laughs> I mean, I was, um, I, I felt like I was going to faint all the time. And I was like, this is not good for me. When I ate my like first solid foods, I was like, hallelujah. Thank mm -hmm. you, God. <laughs> so I don't advise anyone to do that. And when we come to detox teas, they contain laxatives. I know there are a lot of people who are very vocal about this, especially I know um, Jamila Jamil, I think is her name. 
Um, she's an um, British actress. She has a page that she specifically talks about like diet culture and detox teas and stuff like that. She actually started this campaign where um, told everyone how dangerous laxatives are because they are. If you drink them for too long, one, you will get dehydrated because what laxatives do is they um, take away the ability of your colon to absorb water. So if there's too much water in your intestines, then diarrhea comes and then water loss. So the whole thing around detox teas and how they make you lose weight is actually they make you dehydrated. They make you lose the water in your intestines. And that's not good. It's never mm-hmm. good to be dehydrated. So don't do that. If you drink too many detox teas for too long, you will also hurt your um, intestinal capacity to go to the toilet regularly. So yeah. I am warning you, do yeah. not do it. Colonix was the last one, I think. I actually read about this when we were talking about it. Um, we don't have it in th- Turkey, I think. Um, I've never <laughs> heard about it. I didn't see it, but I think it's really popular in U.S. As far as I understood, what they do is they insert a tube and they pump up to 16 gallons of water. Mm-hmm. And sometimes fancy water. It like some, some make it with like caffeine, some oxygen. I mean, yeah. cool, but 16 gallons, that's too much for anybody's intestines that's too much so what happens is well allegedly they say this removes toxins in your gut well yeah again Mm -hmm. that's what gut does you don't have to remove it from it because it's its whole purpose so um you risk dehydration because usually people have diarrhea afterwards because you're pumping way too much and Mm -hmm. i've read about a lot of abdominal cramps and the worst thing is there can be intestinal perforation which means that you might pop your intestines it can be really bad so no please don't don't do that yeah you know it's interesting we talk about all of these diets and there's so many different kinds and people go on diets all the time and we restrict ourselves all the time and uh we as a population regardless of where you are in the world well not in the entire world but um Mm -hmm. you know we're we're always we also always seem to be on on, a diet especially in america where it's you know the obesity rate is Mm -hmm. is enormous and yet and yet let me give you some statistics on weight loss. <laughs> so in during research, um, the research suggests that roughly 80% of people who um, lose weight, a significant portion of their body fat, they will not maintain that same amount of weight loss for 12 months. And According to one meta-analysis of intervention studies, dieters regain on average, more than half of what they lose within two years. It's crazy. So in short, mm-hmm. we've known for quite some time that while it's hard to lose weight, we all know that it is that much more harder to keep it off. And mm-hmm. I always, you know, I've known about these statistics, so this is nothing new to me, but I always think, and I don't know if you guys, you probably have this in Turkey too. There's a show that was called The Biggest Loser. You know mm-hmm. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge trigger for me. I will. Yeah. 
I won't watch it. I watched yeah. an episode, or, uh, you know, I, I, it, it to me too, it wasn't a trigger for me, but it was definitely so unpleasant to watch because we all realize that they're losing weight way too quickly. And as soon as they're going to get off the show, they're going to gain it back. So I decided to look up statistic on, statistics on that too. An average weight after 30 weeks on The Biggest Loser was 199 pounds. Now remember, these people were really obese, right? So mm-hmm. an average weight six years after final on camera weigh-in was 290 pounds. That means that on average, participants gained at least 70% of their uh, weight loss, of their weight that they lost. So mm-hmm. yes, maybe they kept like 30%, but the reality is they they gained 70 back. And these people were not like overweight. They were obese people. So right now they're kind of back to their old ways. And I'm sure as the time go, what goes on and on and on, if they will continue to gain because it's so hard. I mean, they were working out like six hours a day and restricting their food intake. So with all this knowledge and experience, why do diets fail? Why do we fail to lose and maintain? Why do we continue this cycle of losing weight, gaining weight, losing weight, gaining weight, or maybe not even losing weight, but wanting to lose weight and not being able to, why do we fail? You tell me right now. (laughs) Well, this is, um, this is a very nuanced topic, but I will um, try to do my best. So it's a complicated subject, right? Because um, it has so much more to do with our psychological state um, rather than metabolic state. Um, but for disclosure, I will say um, there are certain diseases like um, hypothyroidism that will make your body prone to weight gain. Um, and I'm not talking about those. Um, I think one major thing is hunger. Um, we usually starve ourselves during um, a diet. We, um, we are too hungry for too long. And if you're too hungry for too long, you won't adhere to that diet because what you're doing is you are relying entirely on your willpower not to eat. But it's really hard because your body wants to preserve itself. It wants you to survive. So your body will never think hunger is okay. Your body will never be okay with being hungry for too long because it, because it needs food. It needs nutrients. Mm-hmm. And it's incredibly hard to keep away from foods you associate with warmth and comfort, especially when you're stressed. I know there are certain foods for me that has um, cultural and um, familial meaning. Whenever I can, I come from a very bad night shift, I want to eat something that will make me feel like I'm back at the dinner table at my mom's house, my mom's cooking, or my grandma's cooking. I, I enjoy those foods. And it's okay for us to enjoy those foods. We need that. And that's okay. If you try to starve yourself, both physically and emotionally, you will get drained no matter what. When it comes to um, losing weight, we all know the principle is actually very basic. The only thing you have to do is create a calorie deficit. That's Mm -hmm. it. You have to consume less calories than you burn. But how simple that sounds, it's not real. It's not really that simple because the calorie you spend changes all the time. And I want to, I want to emphasize that because what people do is they, they have a goal of a specific calorie that they will take for that day. But those calories, those numbers are not designed for you 
and are not designed for your particular situation. What I mean by that is this. The calories you spend in a day changes according to your body weight, your body composition, your height, your muscle mass. What you do in a day, for example, if, um, if I'm in a hospital or if I'm lying down in bed for an entire day, those two days are going to be completely different. If I eat the same amount in those two days, the feeling I have will be different because if I were to, you know, um, check up on my patients going, running from ward to ward, that specific amount of calories will not be enough for me. If I try to um, limit myself to that, I will feel bad. It's right. just simple as that. So more importantly, your menstrual cycle changes the amounts of calories you need. This mm -hmm. is really important, your sleep cycle. And even the temperature of place you um, live changes um, your need of calories. For example, um, people co in colder places like Russia or Kazakhstan consume a lot of high-fat foods mm -hmm. and a lot of alcohol. Um, <laughs> but, they, but they seem to be leaner because um, they need more calories just to preserve their body temperature. So all these calorie calculations are based on an average and even worse, a male average. Because, fun fact, most of the lab experiments are done on males, even in animal studies, because mm. it is believed that the cycle of females make it, quote unquote, complicated. Oh, oh. <laughs> This is really important. So even if you manage to keep a calorie deficit with all this knowledge, even if you manage to keep a calorie deficit all throughout that diet, what would happen is your body would lower your metabolism rate. So it only tries to make sure that you don't die. It goes into the starvation mode. But what would happen is that, I mean, you will be in a war with your body. You try to look good. You try to look like a certain ideal body type. And your body will just try to make sure you don't die. So with all that in mind, I want to ask everyone just to ask themselves, why do you want to diet in the first place? What's the purpose of dieting? What do you want to achieve? Because no matter how you diet, as long as you're dieting, you're just applying a strict regimen around food and you will feel deprived. You will feel starved and emotionally drained. So What's the whole purpose behind trying to lose weight? Um, this is just another cycle that you will be going through. If you, if you change your diet, if you try a whole new diet, you'll just find a new cycle to cycle through. This whole thing that we talked about, how you get hungry, when you get hungry, you get stressed. When you get stressed, your body needs more calories. And then it just, it just cycles through. Yes. But I think the idea behind it is that people want to lose weight. That's the idea. The idea is people, and from my understanding, don't you think it's unhealthy to be heavier? And I'm not talking about, you know, like a few pounds heavier. I'm talking about heavy, obese, heavy. And I think, you know, the question is what's normal, what's, uh, what's healthy, and how do, how do we measure that? Maybe we have a wrong way of measuring it. Maybe we... I don't know, maybe we don't have a, a, a quite of an understanding of what we want. But I think the idea when you ask, like, why do you want to diet? My initial reaction is to tell you, I want to diet because, well, for now, I just want to maintain. 
uh, or mm-hmm. I want to have a restriction in certain foods because I want to maintain my body weight. Well, we have to talk about this, but what we call heavy is really important because now um, the main method we're using is uh, BMI, right? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. body mass index. Here's another fun fact. Um, BMI was introduced in the early 19th century. So 200 years ago mm-hmm. um, by a Belgian named um, Jacques Quetelet, I believe. Um, my French <laughs> is so rusty. He was a mathematician. So he was not a physician. He was not a doctor. But what he tried to do was to produce a formula to give a quick and easy way to measure the degree of obesity of a general population. It was designed to measure the obesity rate of a population, not individuals. It's so important because now what we're doing is we are taking that in and we are using it to assess individuals. And the more important point is the formula was based solely on the size and measurements of French and Scottish participants. And Hmm. most of them were male. So this index was devised exclusively by and for white Western European male. Wow. If you're not categorized as that, it doesn't include you. It doesn't include the genetics you have because we all know certain certain races and certain populations have different genetics and they will have different amount of um, body fat or body muscle mass. And it, it makes no allowance for relative proportions of bone, muscle, and fat in the body. So because bone is denser than muscle and it's twice that as dense as fat, if you have strong bones, a good muscle tone, and low fat, you will still have a high BMI. You can be very athletic and you can still be categorized as obese. So this is incredibly important to understand that we BMI doesn't consider the fact of how much muscle you have or how much uh, bone density you have. So it will be different for from age to age. Mm-hmm. And also another very important thing, this was actually a study published by the Endocrine uh, Society that BMI overestimates fatness and health risks of black people. Incredibly important. Again, BMI underestimates health risks of Asian communities because they tend to be petite because they tend to have smaller bodies. When we're talking about BMI, now we can say it's not the exactly right or I would or I can say it's not gold standard for analyzing a po- individuals health risks around obesity all right all the medical staff are using bmi still continue to use what about scale you know i use a scale all the time by the way and i know that there's there's this whole ordeal with not using scale scale is the devil i personally Mm. think scale is my friend there's nothing wrong with uh, (laughs) weighing myself i weigh myself at least once a week if not twice a week Mm -hmm. um but i don't have you know we talked about this like i don't have a psychological like trick for it like I weigh myself oh, okay like I'm a pound lighter I'm two pounds heavier like to me it's fine I just kind of see where I'm at but what are your thoughts on on that method well I mean I can talk about this without um saying that it is a trigger for me I do not weigh myself anymore it's been almost like six months since I've never seen the face of scale and I'm better off this way because I tend to obsess over the number. To be honest, I am not sure what number am I searching. How am I going to decide how many kilograms I should weigh? Is it going to be according to BMI? No, I'm not going to do that because I don't think it can assess my real health risk. So if it 
takes a toll on me mentally, why would I risk it? Because yeah. I mean, I know that I'm approximately the same weight as I was, um, maybe a little bit heavier because of the pandemic, but it doesn't change. It doesn't change anything for me if I scale myself every single week or not. The only thing it would result in for me would be obsessing over my food again, mm -hmm. would be constantly thinking about, I mean, how what number will I see next week? Because that happens for me. So I don't do that anymore. If that if that doesn't hurt you, if you don't feel anything about it, if you don't obsess over it, if you don't feel like it takes a toll on you, definitely do it. It's it's okay. It doesn't matter. But I think it's important for us to, especially as a doctor, as a physician, I like to give my patients the option of not seeing their numbers. Ah, interesting. If they don't want to see the number on the scale, if I have to weigh them in order for me to um, put that in the rec records, I do try to give them option. If they don't want to see it, they can face backwards if they want to. So hmm. I think that's really important to understand that they there can be differences and that's okay. Yeah, I think what you you mentioned uh, previously, it's all about really the psychological state versus the metabolic state. I think a lot of it mm -hmm. has to do with all these types of methods, right? Including a scale mm -hmm. where the scale is very good on like average, but the reality is like if you're trying to gain um, uh, muscle mass, then of course mm -hmm. you're um, most of the time the scale goes up because muscles are heavier than fat. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of that. I think I think you're right. I think a lot of it has to do with like the psychological aspect of it which brings us to to a point of whole other world of eating disorders yeah i think we do have to talk about it because there is such a normalization of disordered eating patterns that are even praised in diet culture. And when I will be talking about it in a little bit about like what are the re signs and symptoms of disordered eating, I think it will be surprising to many people because we think these are healthy habits. We consider them as good restriction methods. So as normalized as they are, I think it's really important for us to check ourselves, to assess our own behaviors and patterns around disordered eating because can lead to eating disorders and it is a very important mental health problem that we have to talk about. The definition of disordered eating is a disturbed and unhealthy eating pattern that can include restrictive dieting, compulsive eating, or skipping meals. And I know that will be very familiar to many people because it is very familiar to me. And the first sign that I'm going to talk about is frequent dieting and anxiety associated with specific foods or meal skipping. For example, I used to skip that lunch if I knew I was going out that night to preserve the calorie deficit. I still do that. <laughs> but mean, why do you do that? But I definitely limit my lunch intake or like my food intake during lunch because let's just say I'm going out. I know that the likelihood of me eating more than normal is very high. And so... I end up, so I'll have a smaller lunch, compensate for a larger dinner. And I don't really, I mean, to me, like, I don't really see an issue with it. I mean, I see now, I guess, now that you're pointing it out, like, I guess it could be. But I mean, think about it. What would happen if you just ate a normal meal? I would just probably have a normal dinner. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. What you do is you're creating this mentality around um, avoiding food because you know that you will probably have a tastier dinner, you try to starve yourself or not starve yourself, but limit yourself. Limit. Mm -hmm. So another sign is chronic weight fluctuations. 
I still struggle with it because I don't understand the difference between hunger and craving. I eat too much sometimes. Sometimes I don't know how much food I just ate and my weight fluctuates all the time. So this is also another sign. But Um, I feel like, you know, also just to point it out, I feel like especially for women, weight fluctuates all the time depending on what timing they're in. And there's water retention and there is menstruation and all of this stuff. I think um, that's an important aspect of it too because I know I can be like five pounds heavier just because of the cycle that I'm in within the month definitely if I know some people weigh them daily and they obsess over the number because I mean due to your menstrual cycle your weight will change but right. in small amount. So this when it says chronic weight fluctuations it means a larger okay Number. So the other one is rigid rituals and routines surrounding food and exercise. So for example, when I first started dieting in middle school, I would walk an extra 45 minutes for every bad food I ate. And there was one day where I spent four hours on the treadmill. Oh, geez. Wow, that's crazy. I mean, a lot of people do over-exercise after larger meal, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen, I also have days where it's like, okay, I ate too much, let me... Well, maybe not the same day because I also know you you know it's not good to work out when your like stomach is full, but usually the thought process is okay, tomorrow I'll do an extra something. Yep, there's definitely there's definitely some of that as well. I want to point out it's for example, if you are if you ate something really heavy, you might want to go for a walk because walking also helps your digestion, but we're not talking about that. What we're talking about is we are punishing to compensate. Yes, exactly. That was the word yeah. I was looking for. If it comes to punishment and not enjoying exercise, then your whole mentality around food and exercise and body image changes, right? And there's also another sign that says feelings of guilt and shame associated with eating. And who doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> I think everybody at some on? point, you know, you have a meal and you're like, oh, I ate too much. Or it's like, oh, that was so good, but too much. Yeah. Another one is um, preoccupation with food, weight, and body image that negatively impacts quality of life. So for this, I can say that uh, my mother is from the uh, beach side of Turkey. She was born in both a very beautiful place, and I spent my holidays there when I was a child. So what would happen is I wouldn't go swimming with friends because I was so afraid that they will see me in a bathing suit. I do not have a single photo there. Because I was so afraid people would shame me for my body and I avoided photos. Now that I'm looking back, I feel so sad about it because I wish I had some photos. I'm sure I looked beautiful. I'm sure I looked healthy and Mm -hmm. happy, but I can't remember. And the other one is feeling of loss of control around food, including compulsive eating habits. And still to to this day, I have binging episodes where I eat too much and I can't sleep at night or uh, my stomach hurts for 24 hours. I can't move. I can't breathe. Even like it hurts to breathe. But doesn't everyone binge? I feel like binging is like, an, it's almost like a norm. Like I feel like everybody overindulges. Or indulges. Maybe there's a like a different type of binging. I think the word binging has been very popular, but I think it might 
be another thing about diet culture because what happens is when binging becomes so normalized, it is also very easy to say, do this diet to avoid binging. So I don't think most people binge. I think a lot of people experience is eating a little bit too much after long hours of hunger. And that's not binging because there is no loss of control around. What you do is you starve yourself so you eat a little bit more. And that's not binging. Also, when you say it's binging, you also associate that with feeling of guilt and shame and moral loss. Mm -hmm. And I think that can very dangerous. So we have to be careful about that. Mm -hmm. And this brings me to the last sign that I'm going to talk about, which is using exercise, food restriction, fasting or purging to make up for bad foods consumed. So it's interesting. Um, I thought about this one. So, you know, as we talked about, I do intermittent fasting. And that so that's kind of a restriction of food. But also back in the day in Russia, my parents would fast every Wednesday for it's actually it's more than 24 hours. And they would use distilled water, not even regular water, they would use distilled water. And every Wednesday, they would fast. And it was a um, it was not for religious or cultural reasons. It was simply for health benefits. And I think Russia, I mean, I think other countries as well. I think Russia and other countries are more forgiving, for the lack of a better word, on fasting, for fasting, because they actually believe that fasting is pretty good for to restart or to restart your bodily functions. Well, yeah, I mean, um, also in Islam, there is um, a whole month that we fast right the month of eight so fasting does have a religious and cultural aspect to it and i'm not talking about that which is really important for people to understand what we're talking about here is the punishment mm -hmm. it's the punishment that you do for eating bad foods that's the mentality around it if you're doing for religious region reasons cultural reasons or if you believe that's healthier but i mean when we say if you believe it to be healthier we have to be really careful about the underlying motives here if in some way you're fasting because you believe you ate bad or you ate too much and you need to be punished with starvation that can that can lead to a disordered eating pattern we should be careful about that that's all i'm saying yeah well i feel like that was a lot i think the key uh, takeaway from this is before we start a diet at all I think we need to examine our relationship with food. How do we treat ourselves around food? What does our uh, inner dialogue look like when we're eating? Are we punishing ourselves with starvation and over-exercising, feeling of guilt? These are all the things that are needed to be discovered prior to beginning a quote-unquote diet. I believe if we choose to spend time analyzing our relationship with food and our bodies rather than spending time to research the next big diet or detox program, we will be doing something much better for ourselves that will be much more sustainable, that would make us feel much better and healthy. Well, that's it for today. This was, again, an important episode. I think we loaded up a lot of information and we certainly hope that you enjoyed and learned from it. Let us know your thoughts. Was there anything that you found surprising? I certainly did. Like, subscribe, share, and we thank you for your support and we thank you for listening. Until next time, see you later, quasi-stranger. Bye, friend.